Good evening, everyone. My name is Letu, um, and I am a gap year student here at the church. Uh, today's reading will be taken from Philippians 4, verse 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not, not that I am speaking for being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to, be, to, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Thank you. Thanks, Letu. Thanks for that reading. Evening, everybody. It's good to be with you and to think through this topic together from God's Word. I'm going to pray. Uh, some, sorry, some of you dropped your head. Some, some of the staff were with me this morning. My baby was with me this morning. Uh, this, for some here, it's the third time they're hearing this sermon. So I'm going to pray for them, for that gift of perseverance and endurance. All right, let, let's pray. Father, this is a tri- tricky topic for us. It's something that trips us up. It's a snare for us. Um, it's, it's just awkward, Lord, uh, money and how we relate to it. Um, we know that it's a great blessing from you. We also know that it can so easily be perverted into, into the most poisonous of idols in our lives. Uh, and so we desperately seek your help. We, we come to you asking desperately for your help this evening, Lord. Uh, please don't leave us to ourselves uh, in this area where we are so easily ensnared. Please, Lord, will you, will you work in us? Will you work through your word? Will you help us to see the Lord Jesus? And, and help us to acknowledge and recognize that he comes to give us life, and not just life, but the abundant life, the full life. Um, help us to trust in him, and in his name we pray. Amen. We live in the city of gold, is that right? This town has always been about making money, always always been about getting rich. From the Rand Lords to the Saxon world Shabin, people come here to get rich. That's why they come. I have one friend, I think he, he may be a Christian. If he's a Christian, he's a lapsed Christian. But he says it straight. He says, my goal in life is to get filthy rich. I want to get filthy rich. The time is now. And this time is for me. I'm not here to make money for other people. I'm here to make money for me. And then when I'm filthy rich, then I'll give something back. Now, whatever you think about that, at least he's being honest about his ambitions, isn't he? Because actually, most people in Josie want the very same thing. We just try to admit it. We give it all sorts of polite names like aspiration and upward mobility. But really, we just want more. Right? So if you're living in Mamalodi, you want to live in Midrand. If you're living in Midrand, you want to live in Midstream. If you're living in Midstream, you want to live in Melbourne or in Madrid. We all of us, all of us want more. It's what we want. And if we're honest, it's not just the people out there. It's in here. And it's in here. 
This is how stats SA define a middle class standard of living in South Africa, right? So anyone who's middle class in South, Afri- South Africa, this is how they would define you. You are someone who lives in formal housing. You have a water tap inside your dwelling. You have a flush toilet inside your dwelling. Electricity is the main source of light in that dwelling. Electricity or gas is the main source of heat for cooking. In that household, you have access to a phone, right? So that's either a landline or someone in the household has a cell phone. That's the standard by which we measure middle class in South Africa. By that standard, just about, I think it's fair to say, just about everyone in this room is middle class, if not everyone. Now let me ask you, are you happy with middle class? We are not, are we? We don't want a water tap and a flush toilet inside the dwelling. We want one in every ensuite bathroom. Right? Are we happy with cooking on gas as long as it's Bosch or Wolf or Yuppie Chef? We're happy with access to a phone as long as it's 5G. We want more. And so we're hustling. All of us are hustling. Most of us have a side hustle. Some of us have a side-side hustle. I see evidence of the hustle from my office, just in the admin block there. It overlooks the parking lot. Monday to Friday, parents hooting violently at each other as they drop off their kids at the Christian school, right? Angry because they have to get out there. They've got to get out there and pay for the car. That's us, isn't it? If we're honest, if we were to define our city's relationship with money, we might sum it up like this. Discontentment. Deep discontentment. We want more. So that's our city. But how is the follower of Jesus Christ supposed to relate to money? I think there are at least two parts to an answer from the scriptures. So we're going to deal with one this week and then one next week. So that's our teaser for next week. One this week, one next week. Both parts, both themes in the scriptures can be summarized in a single word. And the first word, the word we're going to tackle tonight, is contentment. As disciples of Jesus, we are called to be content. And so that's actually my goal for this sermon. If perhaps you are already feeling a little bit guilty, that's not my goal. Right? I don't want anyone to leave here with a sense of guilt. That's not my goal. My goal, because it's the Apostle Paul's goal as he writes to the Philippian church, is contentment. I don't want us to leave here with guilt. I want us to leave here with contentment. What does that word mean? It has a meaning in our culture. It had a meaning in Paul's culture. In Paul's culture, it was a very important concept, this idea of contentment. Here's one description of what it meant to the Stoic philosophers who were just very influential thinkers in his time, in his day and age. This is what, here's here's the description. Contentment describes the man of emotionless, wooden impassivity 
the man whom nothing else could touch because in himself he had found a completely satisfying world. Where did he find the satisfying world? Inside himself. To be content was to be completely detached from your circumstances, right? It was to be utterly indifferent. You don't care. Utterly self-sufficient. You don't invest your passions in anything external to you, outside of you. Why? So that what is outside of you can't hurt you. That's what contentment meant in that culture. Don't index your emotions to your circumstances because your circumstances are so subject to change and to chance. Find your satisfaction in yourself and your satisfaction will be stable. Relate to the outside world with cold, rational thought and indifference. Contentment means nothing can touch you or sway you because you are not attached to anything outside of yourself. Detachment. Do you understand what he what they were getting at? This idea of being detached from what is outside of you. That's what the culture had in mind if someone said the word contentment. That's not what the Apostle Paul had in mind. So this is his great habit. He takes a word from the culture, something that everyone understood. He takes it, he baptizes it, he redeems it, and then he puts it into service of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So he rearranges the word. He says, oh, you think about contentment like this? Well, let me show you what it actually is. Listen to what he writes. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. Paul teaches us four things about contentment. Contentment starts with me. Contentment has to be learned. There's a secret to contentment. And contentment has two enemies. All in the passage we've just read. Contentment starts with me. Contentment has to be learned. It has a secret. There's a secret to contentment. It's got two enemies. Starts with me. There's one word in verse 11. It's so small we could easily just breeze past it. Right? You could easily just miss it. So small you could miss it. It's that personal pronoun I. Paul says, I have learned. He says, I. It's a small word, but it makes the world of difference. It means contentment starts with me. When it comes to money, In our relationship with money, we are all very quick to blame others. It's how the world works. I would be fine if the world wasn't so unfair. I would be fine if society treated me fairly or my parents brought me up differently. If the system was more equitable, I wouldn't have a money problem. If it wasn't for big business or for trade unions or for government, pick your constituency, If it wasn't for those guys, I would be completely satisfied. That's how we like to think. The problem is out there. It's with those ones. Now, of course, we all mean different things when we say those ones, but the problem is always with those ones. It's out there. Listen to one Christian sociologist, Jacques Elot. This is what he writes. Whenever we talk about money, we always end up asking, how should we organize the economy? 
we explain when the general money problem is solved, I, in turn, will become just. Thus, we subordinate the moral and individual problems to the collective problem, to the total economic system. You want justice? Then establish my system. This is the error of all who think they can solve the problem without considering human nature. But it is more than an error. It is also hypocrisy and cowardice. For then I ultimately ask no more than to believe the system builder. It is so convenient. I don't have to think about what I do. I don't have to try and use my money better, to covet less, to quit stealing. It's not my fault. All I have to do is campaign for socialism or capitalism, and as soon as society's problems are solved, I will be just and virtuous. Without effort, my money problem will take care of itself. See what he's saying? Problems out there. Now, of course, and we mustn't lose sight of this, true contentment does have profound social implications. But it doesn't start there. Remember, he's a sociologist, right? He's trained to think collectively, corporately. So he doesn't disregard that. He's just saying it doesn't start there. It starts by recognizing that discontent is a problem that lives in me. The problem of discontent starts with me. And so the solution, the answer of contentment, must also start with me. As Nelson Mandela said, one of the most difficult things is not to change society, but to change yourself. When it comes to money, that's the challenge we face. We, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. Change happens inside out, one disciple of Jesus at a, at a time. And then it grips a community. Contentment starts with me. Secondly, contentment has to be learned. It has to be learned. The apostle says in verse 11, I have learned to be content. In verse 12, he says, I have learned the secret. And the secret there is another one of those words that is gripping by the scruff of the neck from the culture, ripping it, bringing it, baptizing it, and putting it to use for, for the Lord Jesus, for his gospel. Right? He's redeeming this word from the culture, this word secret. It was a word used by the mystery cults to describe their initiation. So there were religious cults, all sorts of religious cults in his day and age, and they had this practice called learning the secret, which was just initiation. And because that initiation into those religious cults was often a long, hard, painful process, Paul seems to be saying that learning contentment has been a long, hard, sometimes painful process for him personally. I think that's enormously helpful for us to know. Enormously encouraging. Two reasons. Firstly, if you are walking up to the start line of a race, it is very useful to know that this is a marathon and not a fun run. Okay, that's a detail you want before the gun goes off. You want to know that because you need to know that your slip-slops and your denim shorts are not going to hack it. This is 42 kilometers. We make a big mistake, a big mistake, if we think that our fight with discontent, the discontent that lives inside of us, if we think it's going to be a fun run. We make a massive mistake. 
If you make that mistake, you will not finish the race. You will quit, you will cheat, you will lose. Secondly, it's helpful to know that even the Apostle Paul struggled with this thing called discontent. Discontentment. It means, think about it, if the Apostle Paul struggled with it, it means that you, me, ordinary Christian, if you are struggling with the fight against discontent in your life, well, welcome to the club. You are in very, very good company. You are not alone. Okay, so now we know what we're in for. How do we do this thing? How do we run this race? How do we fight this fight? How do we learn contentment? It's a good question, isn't it? In the original, that word learn is very close to the word disciple. They actually have the same root. And that's a helpful hint for us. That helps us unlock the secret of contentment. Because there's a secret to contentment. Paul's big reveal comes in verse 13. Halfway through verse 12, if you have your Bible open at Philippians 4, halfway through verse 12 it says this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret of contentment is a person. The secret of contentment is him who strengthens me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we begin to understand what Paul is doing with the word contentment. This is not self-sufficiency. This is God's sufficiency. The idea isn't just less attachment to the world. The idea is more attachment to God. The idea is not just to love the things of the world less, but to love God more. The idea is to seek first the kingdom and to make the king your first love. Learning contentment is the journey of discipleship. No more, no less. It is a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And to the extent that we begin to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, to that extent, our circumstances will begin to fade into insignificance. Fourthly, contentment has two great enemies. From our text, the first is obvious, both from our text and from life in this culture. The first enemy is poverty. First enemy of contentment, poverty. Paul has to learn contentment in the face of hunger and need. He has to learn contentment when he is brought low. How is poverty the enemy of contentment? I have no personal experience of poverty, so I can only imagine. I imagine that being hungry day after day, night after night, leaves you feeling profoundly empty. Not just physically empty, but spiritually empty. I imagine that it must feel humiliating 
that there must be a feeling of being neglected, of being cheated, of being left outside, being brought low in the language of the apostle, feeling less than human. In short, deep discontentment. Now what could possibly overcome such a complex range and mix of emotions and experiences? What could possibly fill that void? If I say Jesus, it's going to sound trite. It's going to sound like the Sunday school answer, isn't it? But it's true. How could I possibly know? I've never known poverty. But I have known some poor people. I've known some people who have learned the secret of contentment in Christ Christ in the face of severe deprivation. Not perfectly, because as we said, it's a long journey for all of us. Not perfectly, but in, in incredible, striking, humbling ways. I knew one man from very, very humble beginnings. Uh, we, one weekend we had the opportunity to share accommodation. It turned out that he had never used a shower. So we're in our 30s at this stage. He had never used a shower because he had never had access to a shower. This was very middle-class accommodation. And even on that weekend, he didn't use the shower facilities. He washed himself with a face cloth in the basin. Now, he may have been poor, but he was one of those people, his whole body just exuded a joy in the Lord. You know those people? He was one of those people who just radiates passion for Jesus. He was just on fire for Jesus. He loved nothing more than Jesus. Despite his very humble circumstances, he found a deep contentment that many who are staying at the Michelangelo tonight will never find. They will never know. I knew another man who worked night shift as a security guard in a parking lot. He had very little. And yet I've never met someone so committed to helping others know the Lord, to knowing the Lord himself and making the Lord known. So committed. A deep commitment rooted in a deep contentment. I knew a family who fell upon very, very hard times. Their electricity was cut off. They had to pull their kids out of school, couldn't afford to pay the fees. When I met up with them, it was very clear to me that they were not eating three meals a day. Even so, even in the face of that very obvious material deprivation, every time I spoke to them, they had nothing but the deepest gratitude for God in their hearts. They simply overflowed with thanksgiving to God. Now that is not something you can face under that sort of uh, fake under that sort of pressure, right? It simply welled up out of them. So what are we saying? We're saying that contentment in Christ can overcome the most severe material deprivation. He is always enough, always. In Him, we have someone who surrendered the riches of heaven to live a life of poverty 
and then to die the death of a slave for us. In him, not famine, not nakedness, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. There is no greater poverty than death. At death, you are stripped of everything. It's a poverty we're all going to face. But if you know Christ, if you are in Christ, then at death, like Job, you can fall on your face in worship and proclaim, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Poverty is one enemy of contentment. There's another. And perhaps even more dangerous than poverty. And that's wealth. Did you notice? It's so strange, isn't it? Actually, when you stop to think about it, it's very strange. Paul doesn't just mention learning the secret of contentment in times of poverty. He mentions the need to learn the secret of contentment in times of abundance, in times of plenty. Now, how can that make any sense? What does that even mean? Contentment in times of abundance. Why would he say that? He says it because riches are also an enemy of contentment. We don't see it that way. But the Apostle Paul, with the eyes of faith, that's precisely how he sees it. You can have mountains of cash and still be utterly discontented. In fact, money often robs you, me, of true contentment. How does that work? Remember what the Lord Jesus himself said. No one can serve two masters. No one. He can't say this any... He cannot be any plainer, any clearer, any more hard-hitting and straight than he is on this issue of money. Listen again. No one can serve two masters. No one. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot. We try, but you cannot. And what does he say? If you are devoted to money... In your heart of hearts, you will actually hate Jesus, even despise him. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what he's just said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So if it's money, if you are loving money, how are you relating to the Lord Jesus in reality? And since the Lord Jesus is the only place to find true contentment, if you love and serve money, you will never be content. Of course, this applies to rich and poor alike. You can worship money, whether you have mountains of it, or if you have nothing. Rich people can be just as greedy as poor people. Poor people can be just as greedy as rich people. It's the same passion for more that lives within us. We are worshiping the same false god of mammon, whether he's cruel to us or kind to us. Now, I think the particular danger for for rich people is that we, and I say we because stats say have just 
authoritatively told us that we are rich people, whether we like to admit that or not. I think the danger for us is that it's harder for us to see our need for contentment. For the poor person, it's easier to see that this God of money ignores them, treats them poorly, is inaccessible. And so it's perhaps easier for them to resign themselves to the need for something else. For us, the rich, all too often, mammon, that God of money, is already on the throne. And once he's there, he's very hard to dislodge, to dethrone. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He's never satisfied. No amount of money is ever enough. And like any dictator, he clings to power. So while we live under the illusion of contentment, pretending to ourselves and to those around us we're happy because of our money, there's still a deep-seated discontentment gnawing away at our souls, deep inside of us. Now, perhaps some of you are sitting here this evening and you don't believe that that's actually true. So let's just be honest. Let's just be real. You may be tempted, although you wouldn't because you're too polite. You may be tempted to say, listen, just stop preaching poverty to us. If I'm going to cry, I would rather cry in a Ferrari and Egyptian (laughs) cotton. Right? Here's the point. You will cry. That's the great tragedy. You will cry. That Ferrari is not the end of your tears. Because that's actually the lie we tell ourselves, isn't it? We say, I'd rather cry in a Ferrari. But what we really believe is that we're not going to cry. What we really believe is that the Ferrari comes with happiness included, like leather seats. And the Egyptian cotton is a coat of contentment. That's what we really believe. Money's going to make me happy. That's what we believe. I'm not here to preach poverty. Really, I'm not. I'm here to preach contentment because that's what the Apostle Paul preaches and that's what our Lord Jesus Christ himself preaches. And contentment can only be found in him. There's nowhere else where you will find contentment. The security, the peace, the sense of identity, the sense of self-worth that we all think is going to come with the golf estate only comes in him. You see, the golf estate can go into liquidation and the Ferrari can be repossessed and fish moths are going to eat the Egyptian cotton. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Who? If God loves you, if you are his child, if you are going to spend eternity with him in glory, well then surely we can be utterly content. This life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's gone. We will be with him in glory. That much is secure. That much is certain. Therein lies contentment. Nothing can rob you. If you are in Christ this evening, nothing can rob you of your peace 
of your security, of your identity. Your material circumstances can change like the weather, like the weather changed today. But your house is built on a rock, and it will stand, and you have nothing to fear. That means if you do have money, and we all have some, Stats SA reminded us, you won't worship it. In fact, because your satisfaction is in the servant king, you will want to use that money in the service of others. It'll be your greatest joy to give that money away. You will know firsthand what, it, what the king means when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. You will grow in your appetite for that blessing, not the blessing of receiving that we obsess over. No, the blessing of giving that the king himself commends to us. It is more blessed to give than to receive. That's next week's sermon. Let me just try and share some personal experience to just to try and make it concrete, the things we've been saying. So, most of us know one or two wealthy people. I know a few very wealthy people. This is my experience. My experience is that the iron law of wealthy people is this. If they are not in Christ, they are not content. They make a big show of contentment. They are frantically running as hard as they can on the hamster wheel of experiences, trying to distract themselves from what? From the fact that they have no contentment, from the discontent, from the disturbing, awful reality that their money can't buy contentment. They are desperate people because they just don't know what's going to happen when the music stops. And deep down they do know that on that day, their money will come for nothing. Even on this day, it doesn't really make them happy. One specific example. I don't know this lady personally, but I have met her a couple of times. She's a brilliant lady. She's absolutely brilliant. She was top of all of her science classes at university. She could have made a real contribution to our society. But then there's a turn in the story, and normally we would consider this a wonderful turn. The turn in the story is that she inherited millions of rands, hundreds of millions of rands. She doesn't flaunt it. She isn't irresponsible with it. She doesn't squander it. She doesn't lord it over other people. She doesn't advertise it. But it has utterly ruined her life because she has done nothing with her life. And those who do know her tell me that she is a slave to that restless sense of a wasted life. Not only did her money not give her contentment, it did the opposite. It robbed her of any possibility of contentment. Brothers and sisters, just think this through with me. If half a billion rand can't, can't give contentment, then whatever the number is that we are chasing is not going to give contentment either. On the other hand, 
I know of others, I'm sure you know of others, some in this church who have this gift of making money. They, they either run very successful businesses or they have a very successful career. Whatever it may be, it comes with money. And here's the thing. They give it away faster than they can make it. To fund Christian ministry, to build facilities like this, they give it to this local church, they give it to help the poor, they give it to love trust. They give it to advance the kingdom in any way they possibly can. And they can only do that because they are deeply content in Christ. They know that their contentment is not in this money. Their contentment is in Christ. Let me try and summarize what I've been saying as simply as I can. Some of us in this room are worshiping money. The rest of us are struggling with the temptation to worship money. Money is a cruel master who is never satisfied and leaves us with nothing but the empty, angry feeling of discontent. But there is an answer. There is a way to be free. It's called contentment. Contentment is learned over a lifetime of walking with Jesus. Of finding our freedom and our satisfaction in Him and nowhere else. And when we do, when we do, when we are content in Christ, then we can overcome even the deprivations of poverty. We can overcome the ugly enslavement of wealth. We can be truly free. The Lord's word to you this evening from Philippians chapter 4 is that we can be truly content in every situation through him who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, we plead with you this evening. Please will you help us. Please will you set us free from worshipping the idol of money. Help us to see money as it truly is. A good servant, a wonderful gift from you, a good servant, but a terrible master. A cruel master who promises paradise but gives us nothing but slavery. Help us to learn contentment in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to find our freedom, our security, our meaning, our identity, our purpose in him. Help us to grasp the height and depth and breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Spirit of God, help us to know just how much we are loved. And that your love and your goodness far outruns our deepest aspirations and desires. Quench every thirst. Satisfy every hunger. Pour out your love in our hearts. Fill our hearts to overflowing with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.